From the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, this is Stories from the Stacks. Each episode, we share new discoveries in the history of American enterprise and its impact on the world, made by researchers using our collections. My name is Kyle Hebert. I'm an associate professor of geography at Michigan State University. The specific project that I came here to work on involves the records of the Seagrams. And as a historical geographer that's been working on questions of public health, both I and a collaborator mine, actually my spouse, Amina Everett, in the history department at Michigan State, ended up running into uh, a lot of references, many references on uh, alcohol and on prohibition agendas. Now we're dealing with a different geographic context. Both of us are looking at uh, broader Middle East, but Turkey in, in particular, uh, both late Ottoman and early Republican Turkey now, but bringing that up to the present too with some of the publications that we've had. In trying to think about communicating uh, histories of alcohol and its regulation to a broader population, uh, not only academic but also our students or general public, it's inevitable that you end up running into the need to make comparisons and contrasts with our own history in the United States, in North America, in the West, regarding issues of regulation and prohibition. When you look at the Seagram's company, historically, the uh, leadership of Seagram's had been very adept at maneuvering uh, and staying uh, ahead of or working around uh, different regulations and prohibitions both in Canada and in uh, the United States historically. And they did that in a number of different ways, uh, not only geographically resituating where the the, the, the company was at, uh, early on, but also with the uh, advertising campaigns that they had uh, and their involvement in uh, the uh, uh, movement for uh, repeal of prohibition. Advertising was crucial though uh, for them because uh, they were among the first to put forward ideas of responsible drinking as an alternative to um, the, the, the notion that all drinking was bad. And so in kind of uh, acculturating a, a sort of sense of responsible drinking, you see one of the tactics that uh, a lot of the uh, uh, brewers and distillers and vintners within modern Turkey uh, have had to take and are taking in order to deal with uh, the uh, regulationism that you have there. With geography, you're looking at uh, and thinking about regulation and prohibition. You're thinking about a wide range of regulating or pro prohibiting not only uh, production, but also marketing and consumption. And so you get into a geography of not only uh, alcohol production and sales, uh, but also the whole culture of drinking as well what it means to drink, what does it mean when uh, people are allowed to drink in one place but not in another, uh, what does it mean when people 
uh, are restricted in terms of times when they can drink. And uh, like a lot of other uh, kinds of behavior that end up uh, getting regulated, it sometimes is a, a behavior that can be either fully embraced but with some restrictions in terms of excess, or it can be something that, to use the word of uh, some of the uh, critics of the recent regulation regime within uh, Turkey where I work, uh, have used it can be ghettoized in a sense. You, you see, for example, drinking being restricted to uh, what they simply refer to as Kermesa Sokakla or Kermesa Bulgular, red streets or red districts, and very much with the kind of uh, idea in mind that this is sort of like the red light districts of some uh, West European countries. In, in other contexts, uh, amid recent regulationism in uh, Turkey, you've also had uh, essentially the uh, opportunity for sales and thus uh, on-site consumption being pushed into places that are adjacent to a tannery, uh, to a factory. It's really a you know a sort of case of NIMBY uh, in, in that sense uh, from a geographic perspective, and you can kind of think about it uh, in those respects too. Not unlike the way either in Europe, uh, but also in Turkey, where uh, you have regulated prostitution, where uh, the uh, sites for that are oftentimes uh, situated, uh, zoned as only being permissible in. Uh, places of disamenity. The time period that we're looking at uh, in terms of drinking within the, the Ottoman and Republican contexts in Turkey uh, in some respects predates even the Ottoman period if we think about a culture of drinking with respect to, to Anatolia. And you had a long uh, time uh, association with alcohol in Anatolia that long predates the arrival of the Turks even if you think about uh, the vineyards of uh, Western Anatolia during the periods of Greeks and Romans uh, and since then uh, obviously local populations uh, Jewish and Christian had their uh, alcohol available not only as a matter of recreation but as uh, something that was integral to the sacraments that they had and so as uh, Turks came in, and uh, Turks themselves brought alcohol too, they had uh, fermented mayor's milk or kumis uh, that they would uh, consume. Uh, they uh, brought those kind of traditions in too. They generally would accommodate for uh, the minority populations that were there. And as Islam is formally practiced, there's a sort of notion of uh, maintaining uh, respect for other peoples of the book. So, uh, it was essential uh, as a sultan, once the empire was established, to uh, allow for minorities to have access to alcohol. And it became a very cosmopolitan uh, empire, wherein you would oftentimes have uh, minority, it could be ethno-linguistic minority or religious minority quarters in the cities, and oftentimes those would be the places most associated with alcohol. But looking at all of that, We've been looking at sort of the cultures of it in a longer sense. You even had though too, even though people have uh, mentally a sort of notion of strict prohibitions of alcohol within Islam, you had uh, throughout much of the Ottoman history certain practices in Islam that didn't only permit but encouraged the consumption of alcohol. 
if you think about the sort of typical divisions of Islam into Sunni and Shia, there's also sort of a third that includes both Sunni and Shia, but uh, others as well that we think of as Sufism. Some people refer to it as a sort of mystic component of, of Islam that you can find in, in both Sunni and Shia traditions, although sometimes the more uh, orthodox of uh, Sunni or Shia uh, won't recognize it. It's one of the more vibrant aspects of Islamic culture more broadly, if you think about a lot of the poetry, a lot of the artwork, a lot of the music, but also drinking as well. One of the orders that you had that was very prominent in Turkey was the Bektashi order. And under Bektashism, the idea is, is that uh, drinking is a good thing. What Sufism is about is seeking unity with God, no matter whether it's uh, somebody that's got a Shia background in their Sufi order or a Sunni one. That idea of unity, now the Sufi orders can be very different uh, from one to another, but for some of them, the Bektashi one in particular, rather than achieving unity with God through poetry, through arts, through uh, song or, or uh, whirling like the Mevlana order, you achieve that sort of unity and a sort of clarity for dealing with your fellow uh, co-religionists by drinking. And the Bektashi order was actually the, the predominant uh, uh, religious doctrine of the Janissary Corps the uh, elite military of the Ottoman Empire. And so it had a very significant place. Today we don't think of it as existing too much as widely as it once did. Uh, you find it a little bit in Turkey still uh, and in Muslim communities of southeastern Europe. But it was very significant before. But you also had certain stereotypes, certain prejudices regarding who a Bektashi was. And you can think about it as being associated, too, with the demise of the Janissary Corps, where there was actually uh, insurrection there, sometimes likened to being sort of the Ottoman Empire's equivalent of a Praetorian Guard. And you had the Janissaries rebelling in the, the early uh, 19th century as uh, there was an attempt to both reform and abolish them. And just as they were associated very much with being uh, belligerent and uh, contentious. You have that sort of stereotype in literature, sometimes associated with Bektashis, and with drunkenness too, uh, in some cases, such that one of the more uh, common folk characters that you have from uh, Turkish folk traditions is, is named Bekri Mustafa, or Drunk Mustafa. And he's a character that generally figures in uh, pictures uh, and in the literature of somebody who is very funny but also so inebriated that he has to be carried around in a uh, basket uh, by a porter taking him throughout the city uh, uh, on his adventures. And so that sort of place of alcohol is one that is uh, again not as completely absent from Turkish culture as found within Anatolia, as one might think when they think about a sort of stereotypical Islamic culture, say in Saudi Arabia. Now moving forward, we can think about, certainly there, there was a lot of opposition to alcohol uh, from some Islamists traditionally and today, but moving forward into the late 19th century, 
just like you had in the United States. You had some of the, the most progressive people as well opposing uh, alcohol consumption on the basis of public health ideals. And although you had a few localized movements pushing for uh, regulation or prohibition in the late Ottoman period, and, and during certain periods too, the, the Ottoman Empire, you had efforts by some, uh, particularly under Murat IV, uh, as considered sort of a major kind of prohibitionist figure uh, to prohibit alcohol. They, they were generally very unsuccessful, and uh, alcohol was still very easy to, to uh, obtain for, for most of the population, especially if you were in port cities, cities with minority populations and so forth. Now once you started to have those two groups coming together though in uh, the late Ottoman period, you started to have a bit more uh, force behind them. Uh, on the one hand traditional religionists and on the other hand some of the most progressive people uh, around the physicians and doctors that were promoting prohibition out of the idea of public health and modern science and a sort of morality that went with that. That's not unlike what you had in the United States either, where you had some of the most regressive elements in the country, uh, nativist movements, ones that were anti-Semitic, uh, uh, that, that were uh, racist, like for example uh, KKK, very much in favor of prohibition on the one hand, and on the other hand some of the most progressive groups in the country, if we think about uh, for example, what was really sort of the nascent uh, women's or feminist movement in the United States, much of it had its basis within uh, temperance or prohibition politics. They came together as sort of common cause as well behind that singular issue. You had that occurring in the late Ottoman context, but it didn't really become a major issue until the early Republican period. As soon as you, you had an uh, early Republican government emerging in Agra, and this was before the Republic was even declared, on the sixth day of the formation of the first parliament of the Republic, and this was when the empire was still existing out of Istanbul, albeit an occupied one, both Britain and France were in Istanbul, and uh, Greeks were uh, uh, seeking to conquer much of Western Anatolia at that time. It was uh, time period of the War of Independence. On the sixth day of that first parliament, when you would think that everything would be dealing with uh, sort of questions of security, uh, geopolitics, you had uh, pushed forward uh, by one of the traditional uh, leaders uh, a prohibition bill. It was debated for quite a few months and you had some back and forth uh, from a number of uh, ministers that were initially for and then against it, but it uh, eventually passed, albeit by the most narrow of margins. It passed in the parliament with a, a tie vote between uh, members of parliament and the uh, head of the parliament, uh, sort of the speaker of parliament, if you will, uh, casting a deciding vote in favor of prohibition. That prohibition was one that lasted uh, for a few years until you had the dissolution, the final dissolution of the Ottoman Empire. It was also one that was widely evaded. In some of the literature that you can read, uh, secondary literature, there are references to the major uh, 
seller of alcohol during that time, being uh, the chief of police of Agra, for example. And uh, it was one that uh, Mustafa Kemal, later known as Auditor, had no regard for or recognition of. He himself uh, uh, was a regular drinker. Uh, dying of uh, cirrhosis of the liver uh, in 1938, uh, in his uh, mid to late 50s. But it was uh, fairly significant. Now, what changed was you had, uh, with the uh, collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the Sultanate and the Caliphate that went with it, and with the uh, Republic in a position then to uh, change the uh, uh, parliament, Ataturk no longer needed to have a sort of wide-based consensus that he had from traditionalists among others. And so although the progressive uh, public health-oriented physicians that were in the state were still very much in favor, or at least a lot of them were uh, maintaining the prohibition, you let it go by the wayside once you had the formation of a second parliament, that second parliament also uh, formally abolishing the caliphate too. From that time forward you started to have what was put in place as something of a monopoly over uh, alcohol production as well as other key commodities. Tobacco was another one, uh, tea also, uh, and then a number of commodities that you had that were considered to be significant as uh, a matter of security for the state. Uh, key resources. That sort of monopolistic control over the alcohol industry then in the early republic uh, continued pretty strictly up until the 1960s, but during that period of time you had the state very actively uh, promoting alcohol consumption, promoting it as a uh, sort of modern, civilized uh, form of consumption that uh, people should feel free to engage in, albeit in moderation. And you had things like beer parks uh, returning to uh, public space. They, they existed a bit before in the Ottoman times, but now as entities of the state, uh, breweries opening, being established, uh, right in the center in Ankara, for example, where you had a large uh, forest farm, kind of a place for uh, rural and uh, agricultural research uh, emerging. You had uh, not only brewery and vineyard uh, and wine production, beer production, but a large beer park as well. And the, the image of it was is that it was something that was entirely appropriate and in keeping with uh, secular Turkish nationalism. You could still be a Muslim, it was regarded in, the, you know, in uh, your own personal life, but uh, this sort of secular uh, lifestyle was something that was considered appropriate uh, as well, at least by the state. Many people came to uh, have a, a more permissive view of drinking within Turkey, even if they themselves would abstain as a matter of religion or just personal preference. And so it was something that you, you would see not being that uh, uncommon uh, during the Republican period. You started by the 1960s to have an opening of that monopoly with uh, beer production, and it was at that time that you had the formation of uh, what we know today as F.S. Pilsen, 
uh, which has become, uh, I think at, at the, the present time, it's the, the fifth largest brewer in Europe and the tenth largest brewer globally. But then by the, the, the uh, year 2000 uh, and 2002, when you had a, a switch over to the uh, Islamist government, government in Turkey with the AKP, the uh, Justice and Development Party, uh, as it's known in English, uh, we ended up seeing uh, a return to increased regulation. It happened, though, in line with selling off the government's interests in alcohol industry at that time. One of the important things to remember is that the, the political Islam of modern Turkey is also very neoliberal, and so it's geared towards uh, privatization of government acts, uh, of government uh, entities as well, and alcohol and tobacco industries were, were sold off. What you had happening then right after that was the original monopoly entity essentially was replaced by, uh, it was known as Tekel, was replaced then by an entity known as TopTech, uh, which is uh, essentially a regulatory agency geared towards the regulation of tobacco and alcohol. And in that context, you started to have uh, regulation of both uh, public smoking, uh, but also of alcohol, alcohol consumption, alcohol sales, and of advertising. Now, Turkey was very successful, much to, to many people's surprise, uh, just a few years ago in having an anti-smoking campaign, one that uh, significantly restricted smoking in public places. Before then, it was very common to see people smoking publicly throughout the country in many contexts. You might have smoke-free buses, but the driver would still be allowed to smoke, for example, or blow back through the, uh, the bus. It would be very unpleasant if you didn't like uh, secondhand smoke. That ended up being very successful, though, and what ended up uh, happening was it became also, though, a sort of basis for thinking about stricter regulations on alcohol beyond what had already started in place from about 2002 forward, which were uh, increasing excise taxes, uh, some increasing restrictions, uh, all piecemeal on uh, advertising, um, on uh, licensing of sales, and, and things like that. So in Turkey, you have uh, this, this regulatory regime. It, it's by many, many different bills and laws. It's, it's nothing dramatic like the uh, uh, 18th Amendment and the Volstead Act or anything like that. Uh, but you, you saw them all in place. By uh, spring of 2013, you had a very large uh, international uh, conference that was co-sponsored by Yeshalai, Turkey's anti-addiction society, and by the World Health Organization. At that conference, you had the uh, leader of the World Health Organization. She got up and she said, Turkey is really leading the way internationally in terms of what it did with tobacco. We want to see it do the same thing with alcohol too, in advance of Western countries even. The leadership in Turkey, uh, at that time uh, Prime Minister Erdogan uh, and, and people in his party, 
announced at that same conference that there were uh, regulatory initiatives in the works that would be coming out in uh, the near future, uh, and this was in April 2013, that would uh, be increasing the regulation of alcohol as well over what had already been ongoing since 2002. During that conference, though, he also made a number of comments that really contributed to the polarization of uh, population in Turkey uh, over not just the issue of alcohol, but over broader issues that we would see blowing up then in the subsequent month uh, during the Gezi Park protests. He made comments regarding uh, the, the Turkish state and its leadership referring to uh, the Turk tradition of having profited off of alcohol sales to its populace, setting a bad example in governance and a bad personal example. Most people interpreted that to be that uh, he, he, he was referring to the, the state as being not only predatory but Ataturk as being a drunk, if you will. He also made the comment, too, that uh, Raqqa, which is uh, considered by many and even had been designated uh, officially as a, a national drink of Turkey. It's uh, uh, anise-flavored uh, drinks, sort of like, or like black licorice-flavored drink, like uh, Sambuca uh, or uh, Uzo, refined in uh, Greece, as not being the national drink, but rather it was Iran. Iran is uh, the uh, yogurt-based, uh, non-alcoholic drink, that it's also ubiquitous in Turkey. Uh, you, you can go and get a Big Mac at uh, uh, McDonald's in Turkey and get Iran right alongside it if you want to. Uh, but uh, that also inflamed many people, and so you started to, to see uh, people within Turkey uh, during the subsequent protests at Gezi Park uh, holding up signs that would say things like Sherefine Taip uh, or um, To Your Honor Taip or basically Cheers Taip, sometimes with pictures of beer steins or of Raqqa glasses uh, toasting him, if you will, in a sort of mocking way. He also made comments too about uh, not only Raqqa but also beer not being sort of the national drink and about it um, being something that was contributing to the uh, problems of youth in the country. Now a lot of people within Turkey, both in opposition politics but also uh, journalists, were questioning is there really an alcohol problem even within the country. Uh, I think the uh, national uh, amount of consumption is something like 1.7, 1.8 liters per year, which is significantly lower than what you have in uh, a lot of Western European uh, countries uh, per capita rate of consumption, but you you had this sort of politics of it being a major problem, a major threat to the youth. And so what you ended up seeing uh, put in place then in the following months as uh, a law, set of laws, were restrictions so severe on advertising that even uh, a local tavern or local restaurant that might have its sign paid for by uh, let's say F.S. Pilsen, had to get rid of the uh, reference to beer on it. And so uh, a lot of people that couldn't afford to have their own business signs 
painted would simply paint over that uh, sign. You had uh, a sort of disappearance of uh, alcohol from public view in uh, terms of all advertising uh, online as well. Uh, even things like a ringtone of a, a bottle cap popping open, which was uh, sort of uh, regular sort of sound that FS would use in its advertisements going back to television and radio decades and decades ago and everybody recognized that was suddenly disallowed as a, uh, a ringtone even. And so F.S. Pilsen had been very smarter, very savvy in still trying to advertise around that and putting forward advertisements that would have just a picture of the bottle, for example, which is has sort of an iconic beer bottle uh, image. It's, it's a little bit like the way that if you're on uh, university campuses in the U.S., Every student is going to recognize an absolute bottle because of their advertising campaign over the last two to three decades, even if absolute isn't written on it. And F.S. Pilsen will put a picture of their bottle with no uh, brand name or anything else on it, and it'll say something like, you know, uh, you recognize us or you know who we are, we'll be back, those kinds of things uh, in, in their advertising. And so you can still buy and sell uh, uh, alcohol and still consume alcohol, but it's become much more problematic uh, within Turkey. It's become much more expensive with excise taxes as well. And in trying to deal with how the uh, companies, whether it's uh, F.S. Pilsen or the other ones that uh, came into possession of what used to be uh, government-owned entities producing Morocco, uh wine and so forth, uh, how they've been uh, advertising and how they've been trying to deal with these restrictions. The idea was is that we should really look at one of the companies that dealt with those kinds of things historically as well. One of the companies that is considered to have been at the forefront of dealing with uh, regulation, prohibition, um, repeal of prohibition, and sort of cultural context of that was Seagram's. And so looking at uh, its transitions over time uh, and its posture from uh, the 1920s, uh, even a little bit before, uh, before they even acquired uh, the Seagram's uh, label, brand, uh, the Brogdon family did, uh, up through uh, the, the uh, uh, essentially the, uh, the end of Seagram's as a distinct uh, entity. It is something that we consider to be very informative uh, in, in uh, approaching it. And it also allows us to place uh, our own research in a way that uh, other people, I think, will find uh, more understandable in terms of drawing comparisons. Some of the things, too, beyond just the questions of uh, regulation, prohibition, that you can see with Seagram's that are very interesting are ways in which the company also dealt with society more broadly in terms of information that was collected not only about their product but about uh, the population and its potential customer base, both its existing but also its potential customer base. In going through uh, materials on F.S. Pilsen, we see uh, the company also uh, commissioning demographic surveys, uh, you know, potential market uh, surveys, both existing but potential markets, 
in society, publishing these even with uh, sort of cartoon illustrations, things like that, uh, very nicely. And so, uh, thinking about the sort of approaches uh, to uh, market research uh, and uh, to uh, the compiling of that, the usage of that uh, for advertising, for expanding a customer base, uh, as really pioneered by Seagram's in many respects, uh, we also thought would be very critical in terms of understanding the ways that uh, we can see some of the Turkish entities uh, having done uh, similarly. Well, with Seagram's, it wasn't so much a matter of the, the label being, uh, or, you know, uh, prohibited, but they would put forward, you know, kind of progressive advertising campaigns, the sort of uh, drink in moderation campaigns, drink responsibly uh, campaigns, would try to put out there that not all consumption and definitely uh, not a majority of the consumption of alcohol that people would be involved in was irresponsible. It was part and parcel of an American lifestyle. It was part and parcel of a modern, civilized uh, consumer lifestyle that if all Americans weren't part of, they should at least be aspiring to in terms of being part of a better life. And I think that you could see that very much uh, within the context of how it was advertised, uh, not only uh, beer, but uh, all uh, other kinds of spirits and wine uh, within Turkey as well. You would have uh, individuals that would be wearing uh, Western dress, you know, maybe it would be uh, a gown and a tuxedo or uh, something similar, maybe not quite as formal. Uh, definitely enjoying a, a very kind of Western standard and style of living. And it was one that the Turkish government was putting forward uh, itself as saying, this is what you should be aspiring to. Seagram's was doing that as a corporate entity, but we saw Turkey doing that not only uh, through its uh, own corporate corporations that it owned or controlled, but uh, as the state itself was doing that. and so. Uh, the kind of lessons of alcohol and consumption as being safe and as being part of uh, a desirable lifestyle, uh, something that uh, you, you can read very much into uh, the, the kinds of iconography, but also in the, the very written messages that are put forward to. I'm very excited to be here and, and to be uh, starting my work uh, at Haley because uh, most of the work that I've done, as I've stated, has been outside of the, the U.S. so far, and I think uh, in looking towards uh, comparison with Seagram's, uh, one that can uh, inform ongoing study of uh, Turkish entities, uh, or ones that formerly were uh, Turkish, some of them have been bought by uh, international entities, it can start leading towards a sort of global history of alcohol, alcohol consumption, which obviously is necessary in some respects. I mean, if we, if we think about both uh, the main uh, producer of Raqqa under Turkey, the main label that uh, was controlled by Teko, by the Turkish state, it was Yeni Raqqa. Uh, it's now owned by Diageo uh, out of London. If we think about Seagram's, what's left of it, to the extent that it's uh, more of a brand now than a, an entity, it's owned out of Diageo out of London as well. And so uh, you really have to think about the sort of global uh, aspect of uh, alcohol if you're going to be 
looking at it historically and bringing it up to the present. And I think by, by looking at these different trajectories, both in Turkey but also in Canada and the United States in terms of uh, Seagram's, it allows us to do that very nicely. Uh, the, the opportunity to come here uh, to the Hagley Museum and Library is wonderful, uh, just by the virtue of the, the place itself is, is uh, idyllic, but also uh, so far uh, in, in working here, the staff have been very uh, gracious with uh, helping us and uh, pursuing something that I think is a little bit beyond the norm of uh, maybe what uh, some other people's projects are, but, but being very uh, welcoming nonetheless. And it also is very nice because it allows for a very focused kind of study. It's also something that we wouldn't be able to do without having come here, given the nature of the Seagram's collection. Uh, you have to be here in order to, to utilize it and uh, to, to uh, work with it. And so having the opportunity to come here and stay here for a week uh, on an exploratory grant is something that uh, is really uh, very much uh, appreciated and uh, something that is also essential uh, in order to enable uh, longer-term research with that collection in the future. Thank you for listening to Stories from the Stacks. For more information on the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society and the Hagley Museum and Library, visit us online at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot O-R-G.